Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And we're continuing our series on wine influencers. And this week we have a guest, Amanda McCrossan, known as Sambavant to many. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for being here. Obviously, I got to know you from your Instagram and YouTube content. Curious on a little bit about your background and why. Well, my background in wine did not start in my youth. It started in my 20s. So my real background was actually in theater, film, and TV. I have my degree in musical theater. So I moved to New York, like so many of us do, and I pursued my career up there and got into wine via a side job. Again, not a new thing for a lot of people. And started working at this place called The Core Club. and. The AGM also had been the sommelier at Le Bernardin, and he was the one that got me into wine in New York. I was really curious about it. My parents really didn't drink much wine growing up. At most, it was like maybe some boxed wine in the pantry or like something that somebody gave them for a holiday. But the one thing that they were really good at was taking us out to great dinners. And so I had a love of food and the world of culinary delights from a very early age. So when I moved up to New York, I was sort of in this treasure trove of great food and chefs and culture and wine was the one missing piece in my life, or at least I thought it was. And Arnaud, this sommelier, was the person that I had gone to and said, hey, can you give me a little bit of an entree into this space and answer some questions? And he was very nice and said, sure, but you're going to answer five questions for me. Here they are and come back tomorrow with the answers. And if you come back, then we'll continue this conversation. So that's how it started. And I had still been pursuing my career on the stage and I was getting up for auditions every morning and that was still a very big part of my life. And soon that sort of fizzled away and I started picking up more wine books and doing more studying in wine. And I was enrolled in classes with the American Sommelier Association. And I don't know, about a year later, I started working as an actual real life sommelier. And I guess my life as an actor was sort of over in some ways. Maybe it's back in others today. I don't know, but That's how I got into wine. And then I worked in New York for a few years and got the opportunity to move out to Napa Valley in 2015. I just had my five-year anniversary out here. I got the opportunity to go work at Press with Scott Brenner and Kelly White. And it was a life-changing decision. I didn't know it at the time, but it really did shape the last five years of my career in so many ways. And I'm forever grateful for the opportunity and the fact that I made the decision to come out here working at press was truly the highlight of my career. And it also was what motivated me to start the other part of my life, which was social media, content creation, video, YouTube, Instagram, et cetera. Could you expand a little bit on that? How did those last five years change your life? Yeah. Press is a really unique job or unique place. And it was a unique position that I had there because working as a sommelier at press, positions like that don't really exist anywhere else. When I say that, I mean, we were only sommeliers. We didn't have responsibilities as servers, as managers. I mean, truly our only job was to sell wine, to know as much about Napa Valley wine as humanly possible, and to talk to people at the tables. So it was a really unique position in that regard. And then also just working with the list that we had, which was incredibly deep in all Napa Valley wines. So we had vintages going back to the 1950s. And so arriving there from New York, having really only worked with a handful of wine lists that were mostly European focused, to go from that to a deep dive in the history of Napa Valley, whilst surrounded 
by the history of Napa Valley with people who are literally writing the books on Napa Valley. It was equal parts intimidating, scary, and very exciting. And I only had a split second to just get in there and learn everything I possibly could. So the position itself really forced the issue, not only in learning about Napa Valley wine, but it also opened me up to the possibility of doing more with that. And it sort of carved out a niche in an area that I didn't really know existed in the way of social media. I say that because in learning all of these things and and going to these wineries and trying to explore Napa Valley and, and get equipped to talk about the wines on the list, I realized that Kelly had put out this amazing book, but beyond that, the history of Napa Valley wasn't really being talked about. So I saw that as as an opportunity to talk about it in a different space. And at the time, Instagram was still the Wild West. This was a time when like algorithms weren't really a thing. You know, (laughs) if you can think back to a time when people posted and it went to the top of your feed, that is how long ago that I was posting on Instagram. So, I mean, it changed my life in every way possible, but I think it was just a conflation of multiple different events and timing and a place in my life and the physical location that I was in that allowed all of those things to have a fairly serendipitous moment. Why did you start the blog? Obviously, you have that stage presence that you got from your theater career, which that <laughs> totally now makes sense hearing uh, it. Everybody says that. <laughs> I discovered you first on YouTube and then eventually on Instagram as well. Can you tell us a little bit of how and why you got into it and where'd you start and how did that kind of expand out to other areas? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to when I was living in New York and I was a 20-something female trying to learn about wine and I didn't even know who Kelly White was at the time. But I realized that there, again, there just like wasn't really anyone who looked like me that was talking about wine. And from get-go, I was like, this is a problem because if I'm feeling this way, there are other people that feel this way. And surely there have to be other, not only females, but other young people that want to learn about wine and they don't want to learn it from someone who doesn't resonate with them. So really from the moment I started learning about wine, there was always something in the back of my head that said, at some point you have to come back to this feeling of not knowing where to start and latch onto that and give other people the opportunity to learn about wine, give them the doorway to walk through. And so I sort of dabbled around with it in New York a little bit. I I put out a few videos under a channel called Unwind with Amanda, which I think is now defunct. I think I deleted it, but I'm sure if you like Google it hard enough, it might still be there in some backlog of a video platform. I think it was all in mostly on Vimeo and YouTube. But I also got sort of wrapped up in this show called The Wine Show, which is actually a real show now over in, and I think it's just in London. I think it's on like the BBC or something, but I had been approached to be a presenter on that show. And then through a series of very strange events, I was no longer being considered for it. And I was out in California. And again, there was just all of these things happening at one moment in my life. I had this new job. I was living this new place. Napa Valley is an incredible place to live, but it's also an incredible place to be a wine professional. And so it was like, I was just being saturated with all this information and all of this content. And I was like, well, shit, if it's ever going to happen, now's the time. I had been watching a ton of Casey Neistat and we talked about Gary Vaynerchuk a little bit. I was watching a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk and I was like, well, you know, I think that like maybe there is an opportunity here. And I had also started posting some things on Instagram. So I started posting pictures of these old bottles of Napa Valley wine that we were opening. And so that was getting a little bit of traction. And well, I guess the real impetus was enough people had asked me which wineries they should go visit at the restaurant. And I got to a point where I was like, I need to have some sort of Rolodex for this. Like this is getting to a point where like, number one, I can't answer the question. Number two, like there's just too many and none of them are the same. So I guess it was sort of like a kill two birds with one stone situation where I was like, I'll pick up a camera. I'll do a Casey Neistat style. I will go to a winery every single day. I'll shoot the content. I'll edit it same day and I'll put it out every day like a vlog. 
And that's really what sort of kickstarted it. And I looked literally exactly what the gear that Casey had. So I had like the Gorilla Pod, the Canon camera, the Rode mic, and I knew how to edit on Final Cut Pro. And so that's really how it all started. And then from there, I just kind of let everything that happened in my life dictate the trajectory of the future of the channel. And obviously, as social trends evolve, I iterated with the times. So did you view the purpose of doing that as more educational? You were trying to educate others and have people have a voice of wine and tell the stories that looked like you, as you said, or was there some other purpose? Well, I mean, I think that the one thing we all have to acknowledge, or at least I have to personally acknowledge, is this is all very Monday morning quarterback, right? (laughs) Like I'm looking at this now, five years down the way with a very different lens than what I was thinking about before. But I guess at the time I was thinking about a few different things. One is, yes, I want to give the opportunity to people who want to learn about wine. I want to give them an access point. And then the other thing was like, you know, I kind of missed being in front of the camera. I missed that sort of creative outlet. And for me, it was, I love editing videos. I love shooting videos. I love being on camera. For me, being on camera is not a scary thing. It's a really comfortable place. And Robert, you joked about my background in theater giving me my ability to be on camera. But the reality is I was kind of born this way. (laughs) Like I've always kind of just been someone who likes the stage. I don't want to be famous. Like I don't have like the Kardashian gene. But I really do like being on stage and I do like being in front of a camera. So, I mean, those two things, like to like one but not the other, it's a very interesting complex I'm supposed to have. But I really did like to be on camera and I did like the creativity outlet of producing these videos. And it was something new that I was creating every day. And I just like to make things. Like I was always someone who loved projects in school. For me, it was like a new project every day. This is really fun. And like, you know, I can go on YouTube and learn about how to edit videos and like, how can I do better? And so it was just an expression of art that I think was missing in some ways, having left my chosen career path of being on the stage. Having left that and moving into wine, it was another way for me to find that outlet. One of the things for me, I also like the creation aspect of it, but I really love the community aspect, the actual interactions that you can get from people all over the world, whether it's a YouTube comment or someone DMing you on Instagram saying they like that or or thank you for doing that. How has that felt for you? Is that a visceral reaction for you as well in terms of like they gave you a sense of energy? For sure. I always tell people, please find me in the DMs. I'm an open book. I love that sense of community. I love when people ask questions. It was sort of accidental. I didn't know that it was going to happen that way. But the more that I do it, the more that I love it. And I think creating that sort of small town community, that tribe of people who are maybe not necessarily like-minded, but we find common ground with wine or, or something that I post about is a really amazing thing, especially living in a virtual world now. You know, I've always been sort of an independent person. I'm very much an introvert. I don't like being in, <laughs> it sounds very, very counterintuitive for what I do, but I don't like being in social settings. I'm not a party person. I never have been. My mom was joking the other day, like I was literally a kid who stood in the playground and like didn't play with other kids. I was a thinker. I was very stoic. Like I was really independent. So for me, this is like a really good way for me to connect with people without being physically in that space. It's not that I don't want to be. It's just, it's not my comfort zone to be physically in, in other rooms with people. I know you're both looking at me like you're, this is insane. <laughs> you were assembly for how many years? <laughs> It's funny that you forced yourself into a situation where you have to talk to people on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part that's cutter. It's a little like being on stage. I could handle five minute conversations with people. I think that's maybe what I loved about it is that I would have these little vignettes, right? Like they were just little mini scenes with like lots of different people at any given night. And so it was like maybe having the physical space between myself and a guest be a table. Maybe that was the thing that gave me the ability to feel like I was on this side and you were on that side. And this is a play that we're enacting right now. I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. (laughs) We're going down a weird path, I know. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. 
What's the profile of the community you've built over social media? Is it heavily, you know, certain? It's a good question. Gender or age group or ethnicity or anything like that? Well, you know, it's interesting as you guys dive into some of these conversations that I don't know what the air date is, but my demographics are almost completely opposite on different platforms. So YouTube, heavy, heavy male focus. It's high 60s males between 30 and 60 years old. And then on Instagram, it's like almost the complete opposite. (laughs) Like it's young females, maybe like 25 to 50. And I think that's just a function of like YouTube is a male dominated platform. So I think it's a function of that. But I also think that like we consume our content in different ways, being males and females and males definitely enjoy the longer form content that is YouTube versus females who kind of like, I mean, this is super generic, but I enjoy Instagram more than I enjoy YouTube from a consumption aspect, but I enjoy putting out the content that I produce more on YouTube. And then as far as like who they are and what they do, it is a wide, wide range. I have a really strong group of trade. I have a really strong group of consumers. I have aspirational collectors, like people that you know are kind of ready to get into it, but not quite there yet. A lot of moms. <laughs> I mean, it really, really runs the gamut. There's not one in particular, like we were talking earlier about like, you know, is it more lifestyle? Is it more consumer? Is it more education? I don't know. I think like I couldn't assign one particular category to what it is I do and who it is I engage with. But would you say it's mostly U.S. based? Mm, not necessarily. Or is it quite global? It's pretty global. I mean, I think that's the anecdotal answer. The nuts and bolts of it is like, yeah, it's pretty U.S. based, but I have a pretty big following down in like, like South America. And then on YouTube, it's really wide. Like I will never forget. Probably the coolest moment I've ever had was when I was working at press and this guy came in. I think he was sitting by himself and he had a German accent and... We get like five minutes in the conversation and he was like, oh, I'm a doctor in Luxembourg and I'm a fan of your YouTube channel. And he was like, I'm up all night and I don't even know what he was doing. He was in the medical field and he was like, I'm up all night and I just, I have your videos on in the background and I really enjoy them. And that was wild to me. Like one, the fact that like this person that I had never met who was living in a completely different country was consuming my content. But then this whole other part of what I was doing was like what I'm saying and what I'm doing is actually reaching other people, which is just wild. Like when someone consumes your content and you've never experienced that, like there's nothing like it. And so you were mentioning that that you're a Somat Press. Are you now 100% into making content? I am. I am a full-time content creator, which is... Nothing like what I thought it would be, especially in this climate. But yeah, like I said, I had the great fortune of working at Press for five years, the last of which I was working as their wine director with an amazing team. And I loved it. I really did love being a wine director. And I loved being a sommelier. I could have spent my whole life being a sommelier and been very, very happy. But the reality was my content creation was taking up a lot of time. It always had been, but it was getting to a point where it was becoming untenable for both parties what was needed at the restaurant as the restaurant was evolving wasn't what I was willing to give. And so it was basically like, you got to choose one. And it wasn't that they came to me and said it. It's just, I looked at the time that I had, the quality of life that I had. And I was like, the time has come. I have enough projects that I'm working on right now that I think I can make this a financially viable situation. So I think in life, you kind of have to lily pad to some extent. So like I'd been putting together a semi-plan. Of course, no one could have imagined the fact that a pandemic would hit. So great plan. But I gave notice at the end of February before a shelter in place order were even words that we strung together. It was just strange timing that I had given notice and I was going to go out my own. And I had a few speaking engagements lined up. I was really excited. I was like, I was going to be a speaker at Aspen Food and Wine this year. And I have been working with Wine Access on some projects. I was 
in talks to launch a podcast with them. So like I had little things happening, but I could never have imagined this situation. And so I left press about a week and change before my official final date was supposed to be just because, you know, the restaurant had closed, at least from a service aspect, and went full-time to create content. And it's been pretty wild. I'm sure this experience that I've had is going to be very different from someone else who's maybe considering doing it just because when I gave notice and when I went full-time, the world went virtual. And the timing of that, I couldn't have asked for better timing as strange as it is to have been someone that was already creating content for this particular climate to be in a situation where that's all that was possible and everyone was clamoring for it. So I can't stress enough how strange it all was, serendipitous to a point, except that I would have loved a little bit of a buffer and some time in between the end of one era and the beginning of another. But here we are, that's life. And so did you see your content consumption spike dramatically when the pandemic started? Yeah, in some places, but also like keep in mind, it was so saturated. I mean, IG Live, which I had been doing for a year and change at that point, that was something that I had been doing, you know, I was getting views on it. But yeah, I mean, I saw a lot higher numbers in that initial period of time. And then it sort of, it never fell back to what it was, but it definitely plateaued as more people entered the space. And then seeing what was happening there, I looked at YouTube as an opportunity to go back to the platform that I had originally really started with that I love so much to go back to that and just really focus on creating content specifically for that platform. Cause I kind of lost sight of that for a little while. And creating content for YouTube is very different than creating content for Instagram. It's a lot less forgiving. So the work that you have to put into creating content for YouTube, I think is not that you slack on Instagram, but I think that like the production quality and the storytelling quality, YouTube is more of an evergreen platform than Instagram is. I have videos on YouTube that I put up three years ago that are now skyrocketing in views. You know, you have to keep that in mind when you're creating content for YouTube. You don't necessarily have to think about that with Instagram. You know, you can put something up and if it bombs, it bombs, you know, you move on. But with Instagram, it's like, that shit could live forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of having dabbled in both. So you have almost 24,000 on Instagram and about five, 6,000 on YouTube. How much time a week do you spend on each versus the other? And like, how do you divide up that work? Because obviously the content platforms are quite different. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even begin to quantify what the number is as far as how I divide the time, but I think it just depends on the projects that I'm working on. And maybe this is the conversation that we should have instead, which is how I decide what content to produce in general versus whether I spend more time on YouTube versus Instagram. And I guess right now I'm sort of like 70-30 in the amount of content that I'm producing that's monetized versus the content that I'm producing that's not. 70% is not, 30% is. And those numbers can fluctuate from week to week. But for example, like I had a video go out on YouTube a couple of days ago that was done for Xena Crown, but really I had carte blanche to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. And I sort of presented them this idea for a slightly avant-garde cinematic-esque five-minute video that would highlight brand awareness, but wouldn't necessarily be about converting the sale. And so content like that, where it's more cinematic and it's less about getting people to actually buy the wine that lives on YouTube for me. And that was specifically created for YouTube. I put it up on Instagram and it actually did really well on Instagram. It was surprising to me, but it really depends on what the need is of the client. But at the same time, the client generally comes to me and says, what do you want to do? And I give them the idea and they kind of say yes or no. So I have a little bit more autonomy when it comes to how I create content and what it is that I do. In terms of content creation, so your following and and your audience 
Are you creating the content for them to launch on their platform or are you creating it for them to launch on your platform? Or is it both? Always on mine. There is very rarely a situation in which I'm not creating content that will live natively on mine. They always have the right to use the content if they so choose. And I always make that very clear in the contracts, but I'm also equally as stringent on the fact that there is absolutely no ownership on their part. All content is always owned by me. I don't sell my content. I don't sell the footage. They don't get to dictate the terms. They don't get to dictate where there should be edits, where there should be inserts. All of the content is for my audience. And if it doesn't work for my audience and it doesn't work for me, then it doesn't work and it won't live there. And I'd rather pull the contract than have anything go up on my platforms that doesn't work. Yeah. I think that's so important. A lot of people get lost in having that resolve to say like, hey, I know my audience. I know what they like. They're here for me. And I've been communicating to them for X number of months or years and tailoring that. Can you talk a little bit about how you start to tailor your content for your audience? Like, how do you know what they like or what they would like? Because I think that's a very important part of growth. I think, and just to touch on that point of making sure that you are steadfast in your beliefs as an influencer, so to speak. I mean, that's really hard because this space is still moldable and most people don't understand. I still don't think that I fully understand it, but certainly the people that are cutting the checks don't understand it. So as a creator, as an influencer, you have to know who it is you are and what it is you want. And the only way that you can know that is by listening to your audience. And so much of that has to do with what happens in the DMs, looking at the comments, looking at the engagement. I mean, sure, the numbers have to be there, but the feedback is everything. And so when I'm handing back metrics to these companies, I'm not just handing back like, this is what the impressions were, you know, how many clicks you had to the website. Like I'm actually screenshotting some of the comments and some of the things that are happening in the DMs to show them that this is not just about what happens from a numbers standpoint. Like this is also about brand awareness. And this is how I've helped your brand to build. These are the people that have looked at your brand and are assigning it a value that has nothing to do with any sort of monetary or financial stipulation. I think that's probably the hardest thing as someone who is a creator that is looking at maybe monetizing. Those first conversations are really, really challenging. And I must have looked everywhere for answers to these questions. And I still have people reaching out saying like, hey, like, how do you charge for X, Y, and Z? And what do you charge for X, Y, and Z? And the reality is like, there's no rule book for this, but it does come down to, you do have to understand how to value your time from a dollars and cents perspective. Chase Jarvis, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a photographer up in Portland or Seattle, I always forget. Really amazing content that he puts out, but he's always willing to walk away from any situation. And I think if you go into any situation with that in mind, that will serve you well. And I can't tell you how many times that I've gone into meetings and contract negotiations and wanted to capitulate, wanted to say, okay, fine, I'll do it for X amount of dollars less. Okay, fine, like you can have final say. The reality was that serves no one, especially if you're the one that's creating the content and you know your audience and you know what's best and you know how you work. It's really easy to let other people dictate the terms. It's much harder, but much more effective. It's a short-term pain, long-term game to do what is right for you but know that you have to be willing to walk away. And I've walked away from a lot of situations that didn't make sense. And that's okay. And I think that as a creator, you have to know that that's okay. And you know that that's okay because you believe in your work and you believe in what you're doing. You're in touch with the audience. Now, if you're a garbage creator, you're only doing it for the dollars, then yeah, I mean, you've got to capitulate. But for me, I mean, I think I've taken the time to get to know my audience and done the research and put in the time and I make damn good content and I am willing to stand behind that and I'm willing to take whatever offer it is to the table that I've really, really thought about it, I'm willing to put it on the table and walk away if you say no. So in terms of the point about the people writing the checks don't understand the space, 
which I think is largely true. Mm-hmm. What are some tips that you would give to wineries or brands that are looking to use influencers to help educate themselves about what they're looking for? Because there's plenty of accounts out there with bigger followings. There's always someone with a bigger following. They may not align with their brand and things like that. Like, what were some advice be to brands? I mean, to be fair, I think a lot of brands are starting to get there. And I think there are really great PR companies that are helping them to arrive at that point. I think the problem was it is such a new space. And I think to my point earlier, so many of us were willing to just do it for free or do it for wine or do it for the exposure. And I think that's another big thing right now is like some of these brands are like, well, you know, we'll send you a case of wine or, you know, we'll really promote your brand. And that's great to some degree, right? Like you have to assess that value because it's not always about the financial compensation. But as a brand, you get what you pay for. So if you're only willing to send someone a few bottles of wine to do the job that they actually need that wine to do, I mean, think about that. Does that make sense for you? Is that what you're willing to stake your reputation on is like a couple bottles of wine for someone to half-ass it? I don't know. Maybe it is. Like, I think for some brands that works. Like, I think for some brands, like if it is just trade and you just want to send as many people a bottle of wine in the hopes that they're going to post, then great. But to me, that's, you're not working with a professional. You're working with someone who is creating maybe great content, maybe not, but it's user-generated. And, you know, I think you also need to do your own research to see if that person aligns with you and aligns with your values. And you can't just look to see the numbers and look at, you know, they have 25,000 followers, but are they engaged? Are people commenting on these posts and saying, thank you for the content and this is what it means to me? You have to do your due diligence. I don't think enough people in general do their due diligence, but when you are considering working with any brand, you have to know that like it's going to be a reflection of your company and your core values. So I'm always amazed that wineries are willing to, just brands in general, willing to do the things that they're doing without doing due diligence to see how that's going to reflect upon them. So specifically, what are some things that they can do? Start researching accounts, search hashtags, look in the comments, look for people who have maybe posted about other wines and really dig into what those comments are. You know, are they the same 15 people over and over and over again? Are they in a comment pod? Is that real engagement? And I'm not here to crap on anyone. I'm really not. But like, I think, again, you have to know what outcome you want as a brand. And if it's really just like checking some boxes so that you can go to your superiors and say, look how much engagement we got. Look at all the reaches. Look at all the impressions. And like, yeah, maybe you did your job. But like at the end of the day, did it really convert anything? Because it's the same 15 people commenting over and over. Probably not. Well, I think, you know, from the brand perspective, they probably are just worried about how much time that would take. What you described is the right approach, but it's a lot of work, right? Because there's so many influencers, however you want to describe that, out there, right? And that information isn't very transparent or, or easy to get. What's the standard interaction when a winery or a retailer or someone reaches out to you? What do they tell you? What's the interaction like? Oh, there's nothing standard in the space. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can give you a few examples. I think sometimes, you know, if it's a winery, sometimes they'll say, hey, can we send you our blah, blah, blah cuvées in exchange for a post? And the answer is always no. Here's what I will do. It's always a yes and conversation or a no but. If they say, can I send you wine in exchange for X, Y, and Z, specifically, no compensation, my rebuttal or my response back to them is, I don't do posts in exchange for wine. My fees vary from project to project, but I also have to make sure that if this is a cold call, I don't know this brand, I've never worked with them before. I generally don't work with brands that I don't know. So first things first is let's have a conversation. Let me get to know you. Let me try the wines. Let's see if there's a relationship there. And then let me try to find the story and come back to you. 
But here's what I want to say. What I charge is X amount of dollars at a bare minimum. So if this doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. But the quality of content that I produce is such that one, I don't work with everyone. And two, I take a lot of time to do what I do. It's not just, you know, I'm, I'm not just snapping a picture. I'm not just putting up an Instagram story. It is dozens and dozens of hours to do some of the things that I do. And so I think when you explain to people, not necessarily specifically what you do, because I don't think anybody really cares, but just try to hone in on the fact that there is a quality of content that you expect from yourself. I don't want to do anyone a disservice. So help me help you. And if this doesn't work for you, that's great. If it works for you, great. We'll continue the conversation. You know, it has to start somewhere. And the answer is no, I don't do post and exchange for wine, but here's how we continue this conversation. PR agencies have reached out before and they'll give me a list of clients. And it's kind of a similar discussion. Like sometimes they'll give me a list and say, who do you want to work with? And sometimes it's people that I recognize. And I have standard rates for certain things, you know, whether it's a live video or a full video. But at the same time, not everything is about financial compensation. Sometimes it's about the long game. And sometimes there's companies that I'm really keen to work with because I know that there's a long-term value there as far as a relationship. And the other thing is, (laughs) I'm of a Tim Ferriss mindset. And so I was always a delay monetization for as long as humanly possible. And I really only want to work with people who I can work with on a long-term basis. I just don't think it serves anyone for me to do post after post after post on different wineries that I have no affiliation with. Like, I can't tell that story. I'm not helping you by doing a post. I'm not going to waste your time or money, you know, if we don't have a relationship or I don't genuinely believe that there's something there. So it's more of like a brand ambassador model is kind of what you're envisioning? Kind of, yeah. As like an ideal where, where influencers could go? Yeah, I mean, gosh, this is such a complicated conversation. I'm not sure if I'm so eloquent in trying to explain it. But yeah, I think it's so multifaceted in how I approach things. One is, is this going to resonate with the audience? And two, if it does, how can I make it interesting? How can I make it fun? And how can I help to tell this story in a way that's beneficial not only to the client, but also to the audience? And does this reflect my brand? And so I guess it's boiled down to those finer points, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, I guess like if I were smarter and I really took the time or had the time to boil it down in an eloquent way, I might boil it down to that knowing that, you know, there's all sorts of variables and there's all sorts of reasons why I might say yes or no. But I guess those are the primary North points that I try to travel towards. And in terms of the type of work that you're doing for paid sponsorships or paid posts, when someone comes to you with a request, when you create the content, do you determine which platform that content will be best for based on the negotiations? Or is it something that they're saying, hey, I want you to post on Instagram or I'd like to do a video on Instagram and then they kind of give you some leeways? Or are you saying, hey, I thought this was going to be for Instagram, but now it's better for YouTube. Do you make those calls or is that on the brand? I make those calls. Not always initially. Sometimes the brand will ask for X, Y, and Z and I'll look at the project and say, I actually think this is better suited for a different platform. And again, it goes back to what I was talking about before about dictating your terms and knowing your audience and trusting that and knowing that like, Even if you think that this is better as an IG live or whatever, I'm telling you right now, this is better as a YouTube live. We can have a conversation about why you're right and why I might be wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make the call. If your call doesn't align with my call, then it's no deal. And what is the range of content that you create? So there's YouTube videos, IG live, IG posts. Are there other things that you do with the brands? Yeah, there's webinars. There are speaking engagements when we used to have those. Sometimes. Now known as webinars. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's not like a whole suite of them. But yeah, I mean, it's different types of IG posts. I don't do writing content. Like I don't have an actual blog. I guess you could consider my Instagram posts the blog. 
in some ways because I take every character aloud to me to write everything in that I get a lot of too long, didn't read comments. I think that's also part of my shtick in some ways. Like I do write a lot and I have something to say. It's never just like, hey, look at this cool bottle of wine. See ya. And I think knowing that, knowing that like I'm going to take the time, like for me to write, it does have to feel natural. That is part of the reason that I have to dictate the terms because I just, I can't not be authentic. I had a bit of an existential crisis a few years ago and I realized that I was doing that. And I was like, I have to stop. Like this is not working for me. But yeah, as far as platforms are concerned, I like both and I think both are great, but I do most of my work on both of those platforms. I do very little on Facebook and there's very little outside of like a static post, an IG story, an IG live, a YouTube live and a YouTube video that I do aside from like webinars. You said 30% of your content is sponsored and 70% is non-sponsored. Do you see different engagement patterns between those different types of content? That's a good question. I think anecdotally, no. I haven't really taken a dive into the actual numbers. I can't say with any certainty, yes or no. I'd just be curious if, you know, as a consumer consuming the content, if I have a different lens on it, right? If it's sponsored or or something else, is it easy for people to tell? I think so. I guess if I'm doing my job right, no, it shouldn't be that easy. But, you know, I'm also very transparent. I think there is a stigma associated paid content being bad. And I categorically find that to be untrue. I think there's an association because so much of it is. But for me, the paid content really isn't the purchase of an endorsement. It's a compensation for my time because I already believed in the product and I wanted to create this content. And so it's basically validation from the company or from the winery in what I do. And I know that sounds a little bit romanticized to some degree, but I truly believe that's what it is. And have you heard from the brands? Have they given you feedback in terms of if your content has accomplished whatever their objectives are, be it brand awareness or driving sales and conversion? Mostly you only hear the good stuff. I think if there were bad feedback, I'd probably hear about it. But mostly it's just we don't work together again. I don't think that I've had any brands walk away from a project unhappy. If you're listening and you were unhappy, I'd love to hear about your experience. (laughs) I've had brands tell me, hey, thank you so much. We've gotten so many inquiries on our wine. And like I had Harvest Duhigg. She did not pay me. I love her and her wine. She's one of the winemakers at KMS and she has her own wine called Duhigg. But she said, anytime I talk about her or post about her wine, she said, I get 20 to 30 new signups in my mailing list. I don't know if that's an anecdotal number from her or a real number. She's not one to mince words. So I feel like it's real. But yeah, I mean, like I love hearing the conversion and I love hearing that there's actual like sales attached to what I do. And with Wine Access, they actually do give me some of that intel. And when it converts big, it's big. I always feel like I know when something is going to convert high. There's something intangible about that like star quality thing that you can't really assign anything to, assign a word to. There is something in certain projects that I do that I'm like, I think this is going to convert really high. And there have been a few projects where like I've heard the feedback and it converted really, really high. You know, that's great to hear. I am as much a creative as I am a business person and I love finance and business. And for me, hearing that there is a correlation between what I'm doing and the outcome of it on the other side, that is massive, but it's not what fuels me you know, what fuels me is the conversations and the the continuation of what I do. Obviously, it helps to inform from a creative standpoint that I need to do more of that and that worked, but I can't always control why certain things happen the way that they do. 
So in terms of your growth in social media over time, like we've all been there in terms of, you know, what you mentioned early on, like the algorithm, it's a thing, it's not a thing. What are some, er (laughs) it's a thing, (laughs) it's definitely a thing and it's changing all the time, but what are some tips that you can give for people to help grow their audience? And what are some things that you've done and been a mistake? And you're like, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It actually had the opposite effect. Oh, I've done everything in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think like going back to, there was a company that I engaged with that promised me the world. And they're like, you know, we're going to boost everything and it's all organic. And they went and I don't think I've ever been more angry in my life. They went and put me in this like giveaway that was happening like internationally and it boosted my followers. They didn't tell me that they were going to do it. And all of a sudden, like my follower count like shot up and I was like, what the fuck did you just do? They're like, oh, you know, we thought it would be a bonus. And I was like, this is not a bonus. These people are not engaged in what I'm doing. And now my numbers look inflated. So huge mistake. Do not go that route. And there was unfortunately nothing I can do. You can go in and like manually delete these followers, but it takes enormous amounts of time and like who's engaged, who's not. So, I mean, I told you I'd be fully transparent. I mean, that is something that happened and I was unhappy about it, but I guess it's like a beware. Like if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And I pulled the plug immediately, but unfortunately the damage was already done and that sucked, but that's life. So as far as how you can build your following organically, anything worth doing is not going to be easy. So don't take the easy way because I promise you it won't work. And it's taken me years to try to fix that mistake. But yeah, I mean, I think knowing who you want your audience to be and understanding that you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. I am a big, big believer in, have you both read the Kevin Kelly, Thousand True Fans essay? Nope. Oh, it's brilliant. You have to read it. It talks about long tails and finding your tribe, knowing that in a framework that isn't so romanticized and woo-woo, but he really breaks it down and helps to identify, I think he wrote this in like 2008 really helps to identify the fact that like in life, you have to have your thousand true fans and those thousand true fans will convert and buy anything that you tell them to. And everything else is just superfluous. So you can have a hundred thousand followers, but if they're not buying what you're selling, you don't have a hundred thousand followers. You have as many followers as are willing to buy what you're selling. So I guess my advice is don't take the shortcut. Build your audience organically. It's hand-to-hand combat. So anything that you would do if you had a small town business, That's what you do on Instagram. That's what you do on YouTube. You respond to comments. You engage with others. You respond to the DMs. You like other things. You follow other people. You follow like-minded businesses. You follow businesses that aren't like you. You borrow from the people who are doing things that are better than you and ask questions when you want to find out how they did it. It really is that simple. Building your following should have nothing to do with building your following. It should have everything to do with building who you are and understanding what you do and being true to that. It is true. Like the people will come if you just continue doing what you do. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. I mean, I 100% agree with you. I mean, in in the end of the day, you're not for everyone and not everybody's going to like the content you make. But if you get those people that are passionate about your content, they will follow you forever and interact with you forever. And I think that's really true. So every episode, we like to wrap up with either with our guests to tell us something that they think is a lasting trend or a fizzling fad. And with you, we'd love to hear your thoughts on trends or fads in the social media space. Well, trends or fads in the social media space. The trend is that nothing is constant. Nothing will ever stay the same. So don't get comfortable. With this world that we live in, it moves so quickly. The trend is (laughs) the anti-trend. It's the knowing that you might have it nailed down today, but you won't have it nailed down tomorrow. And it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to dig deeper. And at the end of the day, quality content is quality content and it's got to be about the storytelling. So whatever lens you want to throw on that, whatever filter or whatever fancy song on TikTok or fun Instagram filter and Instagram stories, at the root of it has to be 
great content. And I think if the last few years have said anything, it's that great content always shines through no matter what the platform is. That's a trend, I suppose. And a fad, I don't know. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't know what the fads are. There was a fad for a long time where it was just bottle shot, bottle shot, bottle shot. That seems to have gone away. I'd love for the comment pods to like take a freaking hike. I'm really over that. I hope that's a fad. And if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, just go on like any lifestyle influencers Instagram and look for the same 15 people that are commenting on the same posts over and over. And that's in a comment pod. Or the same hundred people if they're in like 10 pods. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, like what I was talking about before, that was essentially the thing that I got caught up in. They were like, you know, promise you the world is a hundred thousand followers. That was essentially like a very intense comment pod gone totally like on steroids. But there's, you know, much smaller versions of that too. I'd love for that to go away. I think it's inorganic. I've been there. I've done that. I'm not proud of it. I'm glad I tried it, but I'd love for everyone to just move away from it and get back to the root of what it is we're doing on here, which is just to create content and talk with people and engage. Right. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.